Hey, it's Bill Simmons. We're not just reacting to the NBA playoffs on my podcast. We're also doing it on the Ringer NBA show and the Mismatch podcast. They are coming after some of these NBA playoff games. Check it out Monday, Wednesday, and Friday nights on the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to a bonus edition of the Press Box. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here along with producer Erica Cervantes. This weekend, I got to hobnob with some talented authors at the Santa Fe Literary Festival. One afternoon, I got called into the green room. I opened the green room door, and there sat perhaps the most talented author at the whole festival, George R.R. Martin. Now, here at The Ringer, I'm nowhere near the top of the Game of Thrones content provider power rankings, but I did pick up Martin's books more than a decade ago, and I loved his writing so much that for a while I refused to watch the HBO show because I really didn't see the point. So I was happy when Martin agreed to meet me for an interview on Saturday afternoon. Now, a couple things. If you've come to our little media podcast from King's Landing, I'm sorry, I have no updates about the winds of winter. Martin didn't want to talk about that. But Martin was happy to talk about the training he got as a journalist when he was a college student at Northwestern. He offered his thoughts about the media in 2022. Martin and I talk sports. He is famously a New York Jets and New York Giants fan. Martin talked about Zach Wilson and Danny Dimes. He talked about what he thought of this year's NFL draft, which he watched. Martin also told me he watches ESPN's first take, though he liked the show better when Stephen A. Smith was arguing with Max Kellerman. That was the moment I let myself feel a little bit of kinship with Martin, because it turns out we both spend time thinking about sports media. Here's George R.R. R. Martin. George, I was reminded yesterday that you got two degrees from the Medill School at Northwestern. Uh, bachelor's and a master's, yes. Many, many years ago, that was when dinosaurs ruled the earth and uh, <laughs> uh, other things. Yeah, uh, I got my bachelor's in 70 and my master's in 71, probably before you were born. It's true. <laughs> was it your intention to be a journalist when you started there? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, it it, it goes all the way back to uh, high school, where uh, at one point, the or uh, I think my uh, junior year, the the teacher had all of us uh, tell what we wanted to be when we grew up and to research that occupation that we uh, proposed to follow. And uh, what I wanted to be was a writer of fiction, and so I researched it with places like Writer's Digest and all that stuff. And I came up with the statistic, it was burned into my brain, that uh, the average fiction writer in the United States in, this would have been like 1964 or so, made $1,200 a year. Now, even in 1964, $1,200 a year was not enough. <laughs> so at that point, I said, I better have something else that I can, you know, pay my rent and make a living from. And what was I good with? I was good with words. I was on this high school paper. I thought, okay, journalism. I, and it's it's writing, but it's a different kind of writing. And uh, then once I decided to do journalism, I wanted to go to the best. And uh, you know, I, I researched there. And uh, Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism is best journalism school in the country. And uh, also, it was in Chicago, which. Uh, might as well have been on another planet as far as I was concerned. I mean, I was a poor kid, you know, I'm working class family. We lived in the projects. 
I'd never been anywhere. I'd never even been to like the Jersey Shore, you know. Occasionally, once a year, we got to New York City. So I really wanted to go some distance. I didn't want to go to a local college and live at home. I I wanted to go somewhere else. And Northwestern, of course, was wonderful in that regard. So, you know, I, I studied journalism and uh, I did well at it. I think it actually had a huge influence on me in, in some ways. It affected my writing style, but also it got me, I was kind of a shy kid and you can't be a shy reporter. You You have to get thrust into the situation where you're interviewing people you have nothing in common with who are total strangers and sometimes asking them difficult or uncomfortable questions. Um, and, and God, it was, you know, it was the late sixties. It was the, uh, what, what we, they have called now the turbulent sixties. So I found myself attending protests and marches and demonstrations and, uh, pretty exciting kind of thing. So, yeah, I thought, all right, I, I, I'm still going to write. I mean, I was still taking creative writing courses, short story courses. I was already writing stories and sending out to professional magazine when I was a college student. But I hadn't sold any yet, um, and I didn't know if I would. So I thought I'd better get a, a, a real job. Um, but, of course, you know, who is, it, who is it who said, life is what happens to you when you're making other plans? Uh Someone famous said that. I don't have my quote here, but it was true um, because I had all this play and I'd get a job at a newspaper magazine. I'd, I'd work at that. I'd read science fiction at night. And then my number came up in the draft lottery. And um, I did not agree with the Vietnam War. I thought it was illegal and immoral and we had no business being there. Um, so I applied for a CO status and I was granted it, but since my number had come up, I had to do two years alternative service. So it was sort of a journalism job. I became a Vista volunteer. They assigned me because of my journalism background to the Cook County Legal Assistance Foundation. And I handled their, um, journalist stuff. I edited their monthly newsletter. I did press releases. I organized press conferences Whenever we had a big uh, a big case that was newsworthy, uh, you know, which most of our cases weren't, of course, but still. Um, and I did that for two years. But meanwhile, I continued to write science fiction stories. And by the time my two years of alternative service was over, I, I had sold enough stories that I thought, well, let me continue to do this. I'll, I will not take a, a full-time job in a magazine or newspaper. I also was a chess player, so that also happened to be the era of Bobby Fischer. Bobby Fischer defeated Boris Spassky and became the world chess champion. Mm -hmm. And at that point, half of America, who had never played a game of chess before, decided it was cool and took up the chess playing. Um, and um, I was able to run chess tournaments on the weekends for two years. Um, I'm not playing in them, but running them. I was the tournament director. I knew how to do that from, you know, my previous experience. So I was all over the Midwest. I was living north of Chicago, in Chicago, and um, I would fly to Ann Arbor, Michigan, or Detroit, or Indianapolis, or 
Madison, Wisconsin, or, or you know, Milwaukee, Omaha, um, and sometimes down south, they would fly me down to Florida or Atlanta or Dallas, um, and I would run a chess tournament. I would fly in on Friday, uh, run the tournament, which were weekend tournaments, and I would fly out Sunday night back to Chicago. That was a good arrangement for me. Most people, struggling writers who can't make a living from their writing yet, they work a day job. Sure. They work five days a week. And they write on two. I worked two days a week and worked on five, <laughs> which uh, gave me more time. So, uh, yeah, so there's that. I did later teach journalism. Uh, in, in, uh, from 1976 to 1979, I moved to Iowa, and I taught journalism at a little uh, Catholic girls' college called Clark College on the, the banks of the Mississippi. So... So have I done journalism? Have I not done journalism? I don't know. But I was trained in it. I taught it. I've done a little of it. I've certainly written, you know, reviews for newspapers and, and all of that. But I have to admit, and especially in recent years, I'm, I've been much more often on this side of the interview than on your side of the interview, <laughs> answering questions rather than asking them. And how has that changed your view of the media being the subject of it? You know, I think it's it's... Inevitably, it has changed my view of the media I, to some degree, but I think it's not my views that's changed so much as the media. I mean, the the internet and uh, the creation of all these, uh, what's the term for them, non-traditional news outlets, internet news outlets, um, you know. Even before that, we had the invention of 24-hour news, so it's a very different world from the world I uh, prepared to enter in 1971, which was a world dominated by newspapers and uh, radio to a certain extent and uh, television. Um, and television at that time was, you know, Walter Cronkite or David Brinkley telling you the news for a half hour and then another guy coming on to tell you the local news for a half hour. And that was all the news you needed. Well, there was what was in the newspaper too. Now we have... 24-hour news on on many many channels. We have uh, all the internet sites, the websites. Uh, I, you know, I I want to dial someone on my smartphone. I open it up, and here's news stories popping in my news here. So I, it has changed media really completely, completely. I don't I don't know. I would think the non-traditional thing would play a couple of different ways because on the one hand, it's different, but on the other hand. Some a website person was likely to know much more about you, be much more invested in your career than, say, somebody from the Chicago Sun Times 30 years ago who said, Go interview George about his new book. Yes, that's probably true. That is undoubtedly, uh, undoubtedly true. Um, you know, I they had me back at Northwestern to get an honorary doctorate, uh, a few months ago. And I gave a speech there. I don't. I think it's online. I don't know if you've uh, you played that speech. I watched a little bit of it today. Yeah. Um, but I won't repeat the whole speech here. I talked for an hour. But uh, the point is, does my concern about the uh, about the internet? I mean, there is a, a quote that I used in that speech um, about the truth will be uh, all around the world by the time. No, no, the, a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth puts on its shoes. Mark Twain, right? Well, that's what you would think, and the internet will tell you so. 
The internet will also tell you it was Edgar Allan Poe, and it will also <laughs> tell you that it's Winton Churchill. Okay. And I made a point of that during a speech. At, at, three, at three points during that speech, I quoted that same quote. Oh, my gosh. And attributed it to a different person. I wanted to see if everybody in the audience would know, and they, they finally did by the third one. Point is that none of this is true. I mean, if you if, if you look at the places on the web that uh, verify truths and all that, there there's nothing in Twain's writings. There's nothing in any of speech he gave that where he said that. It does kind of sound like him, but as far as we know, he didn't say it. Churchill certainly didn't say it. We can't find it either. Edgar Allan Poe. Who the hell even puts that up? But the point I made after I did that is is. Uh, it was June when I gave that speech. All three of those quotes are still up there. You can you can Google them today. They will be up there forever. I mean, that's the problem with the internet media. It is full of errors. They they do not use the kind of journalistic techniques that I was taught, and they post misinformation. And I think most of it's just simple mistakes. Some of it maybe is deliberately. And I mean, I'm not a political figure, but you see it with politics too. You see how they phrase the same story um and um uh, and it's forever you you you'll never get rid of those <laughs> the internet is forever unless you know unless the war in the ukraine goes nuclear and blows us all up but th those errors let's let be errors I, I don't know who put up who puts up these things on the internet? Who put up that quote with a little picture of Edgar Allan Poe and those words extra? <laughs> that is who a weird subgenre. Where did they where did they get that? And what are their sources? <laughs> you know, I, and why, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's the point? Um, and it's you know, I saw a little bit of this in my day. Uh, uh, I'm hopefully it's still my day, but I'm talking about my youth. My days at Northwestern, turb the turbulent sixties, right? So there would be a, a demonstration on the Northwestern campus against the Vietnam War. And I would attend this campus uh, for a, a reporting class or something or to write up some account of it. And I would, I would be looking around and trying to see how many people had turned up for the, for the demonstration. And then the next day I would pick up the Chicago newspapers, which had also covered it, and I would read in, uh, in the Sun-Times that there were uh, 700 kids at the demonstration, and I would read in the Tribune that there were 16 kids at the demonstration. And they were looking at the same crowds I was looking at. Uh, you know, there was the political uh, bias of those newspapers. Troubled me a little even then, but of course what was a small thing then has now gotten so toxic that... Uh, I don't know. How do how do you believe? How does anyone know the truth anymore? It's uh it's tough. Do you like to read reviews of your own books still? I, I like to you know, I know writers who say they never read their own reviews and I don't I don't believe any of them. <laughs> I, you can't. They're talking about your book. You're talking about something that they went to hear. So yeah, I read reviews. But admittedly, I I I, I mean there was a time when I was writing Dying in a Light or, you know, Fever Dream, you know, I'd be lucky if I got 10 reviews. Oh, look, the LA Times picked it up. Here's a review in, in, in Locust, the science fiction magazine. Here's a, and, and they were real reviews. Now you get like these reviews on Amazon that are, it sucked two stars or, 
you know, it was brilliant. I loved it. Five stars. Uh, their their commentary. Their people were chiming in, but they're not reviews in the sense. So, no, I don't hunt down every little it sucked one star or even the reverse. But um, if there's a an actual review, um, substantial review, a, a substantial review, the uh, I, I'll. And I encounter it. It's it's even hard to find these things there because there's so many sources. Uh, but I, certainly, if it appears in a, a major newspaper or magazine, a science fiction magazine, major f- science fiction fanzine like Locus or fan site like uh, uh, Tor.com or or Dewart Zone, uh, I will I will see those reviews. I I do not read go trolling through the Amazon reviews or the. <laughs> Goodreads reviews or, or, you know, there's just, there's so many of them and they're not substantial. That would mm-hmm. seem like self-flagellation to troll through well, yeah. Goodreads and Amazon. Well, but many of them are very kind and they, they like my work, you know, um, but still, I, it's, it's, I don't know. I, I mean, I enjoy hearing from people who like my work. I'm here at this literary conference and I walk around in a courtyard and people come up and say, hey, I loved your book or I loved your work or thank you. Of course, who, who wouldn't like that? I like that, but so yeah. You first moved here to Santa Fe, nineteen seventy nine. What brought you here in the first place? Well, I had I had seen uh, Santa Fe for the first time the previous year when I was driving to a World Science Fiction Convention in uh, Phoenix. Uh, from I, at that time, I lived in Iowa. I was teaching in in that, uh, and but we had summer vacation off, so uh, and the convention was in Phoenix. So I thought we'd uh, drive down. You know, and and see some of the West. I'd never seen the West before. Um, so Santa Fe was one of the places we stayed, and I and I loved it here. And then you know, the following year, it, it's it's actually kind of a sad story in a way. Um, I like teaching. I was I liked uh, I liked teaching. I was teaching English. I was teaching creative writing. I was teaching a lot of journalism. I got them to do some science fiction courses. The kids were great. It was good. And I was still writing on the side, weekends and all that. And I had my day full of all these stories that I wanted to uh, make. But uh, I said, I don't I don't need to do that right now. It'd be risky to, to quit the teaching job and all that. I have all the time in the world. I was uh, only in my early 30s at the time. And I had a friend, uh, Tom Remy, lived in Texas. Tom was about uh, uh, 10 years older than me, but he uh, had had a lot of interesting jobs. He was a printer. He worked in Hollywood for a while, but not as a writer, as a prop guy, um, etc. And uh, then just a, a few years prior, already like in his late 30s, 40s, he took up writing. And he was great. He was fantastic. Uh, and he won at the uh, 1977 convention, world convention in uh, uh, where was it? It was in Florida, um, Miami Beach. Um, he won the uh, John W. Campbell Award, which was uh, given for the best new writer in the field. Um, it will only be given a few times. So Tom won the 1977 Campbell as the best new writer in the field. He was he was working on his first novel. He'd already published. I, I think he'd won a Nebula or something he'd, for some of his short stories. Um, terrific thing. And like in early 1978, he uh, had a massive heart attack and died at his typewriter. Uh, you know, just 
boom, and he was gone. And he was 42. He was 10 years older than me. Um, and it hadn't been a year since he'd been the best new writer in the field, and now he was dead. So that made me think, you know, maybe I don't have all the time in the world. Who the hell knows how much time I have? And I want to write these books, but teaching is taking so much of my time. I'm selling a lot of stories. I'd won a couple of awards. Maybe I should, maybe I should uh, roll the dice. Maybe I should try to go and, and be a full-time science fiction fantasy writer. And I'll see how I do. If it doesn't work, I can always look for a day job later, right? Um, and once I'd made that decision and I gave it in my notice at the college and I'd left, then I realized that, well, I didn't have to stay in, in Iowa anymore and I could move someplace new. And, uh, you know, I, I thought of a lot of places, go back to New Jersey, where I was from, whatever. But I really like Santa Fe, so I, I wound up moving to Santa Fe. And uh, then they got me addicted to green chili and sopapillas <laughs> and the food that they only have here. And I know the feeling. I've been here ever since. <laughs> Do you think living in a place has an effect on your prose, like the physical place, physical space you're in? It can. Um, but oddly enough, even though I've been here for so many years in Santa Fe, I I don't haven't written any real Santa Fe stories yet. Um, I only lived in Iowa for, th for three and a half years, but it inspired me to write Fever Dream. You know, it was right under Mississippi. It was an old steamboat town. I learned a lot about the history. Um, and so the irony is I wrote Fever Dream about the Mississippi, not while living on the Mississippi, but while living on the banks of the uh, the mighty Rio Grande and the uh, <laughs> Santa Fe River. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, it's, it, it can influence you, but you never know how or when. I went to your bookstore today. Did you? Beastly Books. Very Beastly good. Books. And all your books in there are pre-autographed. Uh, they are, yeah. And what's the thinking behind that? Well, people like autographed books, so uh, <laughs> I go in once in a while and, and, uh, and sign, sign them for them. We, and we have a lot of autographed books. You know, the next Beastly Books is next door to my theater, the Jean Cocteau, which uh, a little art house that I... I purchased it had been defunct for a number of years for like seven years but i purchased it and reopened it in in 2013 and you know we show uh, a wide variety of movies old movies new movies art house movies mainstream movies everything but we also have special events and one of the things i started having was author events where we would bring in an author like some of the great authors who are here uh, they would be on tour and they would you know come to and I would interview them or someone else in the staff would interview them and then we would sell their books. We would just set up a table in the lobby and, uh, you know, the people come to hear them could, could get their books and get them autographed after, like a traditional author event and signing. The thing is, the lobby of the John Carter is quite small. And, of course, you don't always sell all the books. So you have a, a stock of, uh, okay, we bought 50 of this author's books, we sold 20, we still have 30 left. So you'd you'd put them on the shelves, but as the years passed and we did more and more author events, um, there was less and less room to display any of them. We wound up putting a lot in the basement where nobody ever saw them, and we had a, a, a small display in the lobby of the theater. Uh, so at a certain point, when uh, a vacancy opened right next to the theater, I said, let's let's get all these books out of the basement. Let's open a, a bookstore. Um, 
right next to the theater where we can display not only my books, but all the books by all the authors who had uh, visited visited us over the year. Um, Emily St. John Mandel, who uh, I was just talking to a minute ago, she was here. She was there. Colson Whitehead was there a few years ago. He's here too. two. Uh, Neil Gaiman has come several times. Uh, of course, all the local Santa Fe uh, writers have, have been there. Uh, Melinda Snodgrass, Walter John Williams, Vic uh, Milan before his uh, unfortunate death. Um, and uh, yeah, we've had some amazing people there. Michael Chabon, Pat Conroy. Um, and so the bookstore has their books, almost all of them, 90% of them autographed and my books, which of course are autographed. Santa Fe has got a kind of an amazing literary community. Some of the people you just mentioned, Sam Shepard lived here for quite a while. I heard Cormac, yes. Cormac McCarthy. Cormac McCarthy lives here, but I wouldn't exactly, I've never even met him. I, he I was going to ask. He doesn't go to any uh, events. He's Would never you like been to, to my bookstore or things like that. Would you like to meet him? I guess, yeah. I mean, I don't know what he's like. Uh, you, you never know until you meet some of these people. <laughs> I gather, though, he's not the kind of guy who likes company. He doesn't <laughs> hang out with the writers or even do, does he even do like signings? or I don't think so. I don't think so either, yeah. So I guess the Santa Fe's own J.D. Salinger, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. What time of day do you like to write? Well, that's a tough question. I used to, the answer used to be the morning. I would get up at nine, have my coffee, and I'd start writing at 10. But now I find I get up later and later. So I think it's, I, I still like to write best after I get up. I mean, I, I, I get up, whether it's at nine in the morning or 11 in the morning, I get up, I, I take an hour to bite, have my coffee, maybe a little breakfast, some juice, and then I start writing about an hour into it. And it really depends on when I rise. But that that's the best time for me at the start of the day. I don't think the, count, the, the clock time matters as much as, and you know, my mind is fresh. I'm not worried about other things. How long do you plant yourself in the chair? It all depends on a how is it going, you know? But uh, I, if it's going well, I can, I, sometimes I go quite late, uh, even into the night. If I'm struggling more, I tend to, you know, leave it more quickly. Mm -hmm. Get up and do something else. Yeah. Yeah. And I do now have, uh, you know, my, my assistant Lenore is sitting right there looking at us. And I, one of the things that's happened since 2007 is my life has gotten crazier and crazier is I've hired assistants. I mean, up until 2007, there was nobody, you know, I, I did everything myself, you know, um, and, uh, I answered my mail. I collected all the little receipts that the tax man would want at the end of the year. I balanced my checkbook. I wrote the checks. I, if we needed groceries, I went to the store, you know, it's just like a regular guy, but at a certain point, especially the literary aspects, got to be more and more. So I said, I can't. And I hired Ty Frank was uh, the, the first assistant I hired, who later went on to become half of James S.A. Corey. But uh, he worked for me for years. And now I'm up to like five assistants, right? Six assistants. How many do I have now? Six. Right. Okay. And, and even so, I can barely keep up with everything. I mean, Lenora is sitting there right now making changes to my schedule for <laughs> one of the 17 projects I have going. So, yeah. We do a lot of sports at the Ringers. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the New York Jets. 
So another passion of yours? Well, the Jets and the Giants both had great drafts, I think. Okay. Uh, can, we, can we get the Jets and Giants draft analysis here? Best, but, well, yes. They, they, well, of course, they partly had great drafts because they were so terrible last year, so they were very high on the draft. They both had two picks in the top ten. And, uh, you know, most of the talking heads and seem to think that they did really well with those picks, and both teams are, you know, are going to be uh, better this year. But I hope is that true because I watched them every week, and I tell you, these last few years, you know, it, it, it's been brutal because they, they, they've both been terrible. You know, for long periods of time, as, I mean, I've been following both teams since the 60s here. It always seemed like when one was good, the other one was bad, you know? I mean, when, when the Jets had Joe Namath and all that and we're, we're winning a Super Bowl and contending, the Giants were terrible, you know? And then the Giants got good and the Jets got terrible. So it went, it went back and forth. But these last few years, they've both been terrible. So my Sunday, uh, which is my traditional day off, I mean, most days I work seven days a week. Uh, except during the fall, during football season. And I work six days a week, and I take off Sundays to watch the Giants and the Jets. Yeah. If I, a, now, if I were standing in your living room while the Giants or Jets were losing badly, how would I see you react? I don't know. I just get uh, deeper and deeper depressed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm not a guy to throw things at the TV usually, but, uh, oh, God. <laughs> You're not a yeller, in other words. I don't know. Am I a yeller? No, I don't think I'm a yeller. <laughs> <laughs> describe. <laughs> you describe your, your assistant, Lenore, is saying you describe how angry you are. <laughs> <laughs> did you actually sit down and watch the NFL draft? Yes. Yeah. You did? I, I did. You enjoy that? I, I, I do. I, I, I don't know why. It... it, it I do think it's extraordinary, though. I mean, talk about talk about the media now. Uh, as you see, I'm I'm extremely extremely old, so I'm so old that I remember when the draft was a bunch of guys in short sleeve shirts with index cards sitting at card tables in a room in pick some up, hotel, picking up a phone. They or, didn't even have to pick up the phone. It was right there. It was like, uh, yeah, we'll take the kid from Michigan. <laughs> How that becomes a televised event that moves from city to city that people pay millions of dollars to watch. And like there were like 150,000 people standing outside the, the draft this year for, for the first round anyway. Um, you know, by the time you get round seven, there's nobody standing there. But they're standing for hours. It's like a rock concert. You know, there's no chairs. They're in the hot sun. They're standing there for hours waiting for their team. Once every three or four hours, their team will do something. <laughs> Other than that, it's still basically a, a bunch of guys which originally searched sitting around looking at index cards. Like, we'll take the kid from Michigan. <laughs> and yet it's somehow... Fascinating. It's the analysis, I think. It's the, uh, you know, hearing people discuss, uh, you know. It's it's also the hypothetical. Because if you're a fan of the Jets, Sunday yeah. might be really boring. But the draft in April, oh, whoa. Here's right. who Hope, we could get. Who's Springs Eternal, right. Zach Wilson, in or out? I, I hope he's great, but I haven't seen it yet. I mean, 
the backup quarterback was the one who had the sensational game. Uh, Mike White, when he came in, my God, he was incredible. And then, of course, it's the Jets. So he gets injured immediately the week following before we could find out if he's the real thing or not. But uh, I, I hope they got Wilson some weapons. They, they uh, you know, hopefully can protect him with some people on the offensive line. I hope Becton comes back, though. I'm a little worried about that. He's a, a man monster and, and w- seemed to be developing into quite a fierce left tackle until he got injured. So uh, we need him. And now we'll see how good uh, Wilson is within he has all these uh, all these new weapons, um, whatever. And the same thing with the Giants. We we got to see uh, um, how good uh, they are now that they uh, they got some strength for the uh, offensive line. And uh, we'll see how good Danny Dimes really uh, can be with he has protections and he has receivers. But I don't know. Are you a reader of sports writing? I I mean I I used to read sports columns in the newspapers. I don't uh, I, I don't even know where it is these days. Here, <laughs> you don't read so much of it anymore. Uh, no, I watch I watch walk. First Take and, and I watch the Matt Kellerman show. Wait, you watch First Take? Yeah, I've been watching First Take for years. Really? Yeah. You've talked about this before. Did I miss this? I I don't specifically talk. I talk about football on my yeah. blog. I don't specifically you're a fan talk of Stephen about a. Smith? first take. He's he's great, um, but I I don't like the change in format. I I thought Smith and Kellerman were very good together. Um, now, you know, it's a different guy every day. None of them are nearly as good as Kellerman. Some are better than others, and and uh, I, I like the old format better, but. Then again, like I say, I'm an old guy. I also liked uh, um, Chris Berman. I really miss watching Chris Berman um, in the, you know, the draft, doing draft, and and he did uh, uh, the uh, the post game show and and the pre game show. Chris Berman and Tom Jackson were the best man, and 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 they were fun. You know, Chris would invent all his goofy nicknames for people and all of that. But it wasn't like a clown show. Some of these current things uh, seem like they're all, they're not discussing football so much as they're kind of clowning around and playing silly games that they're inventing, you know, for the week and doing things with cardboard cutouts and all that. I don't know. (laughs) Another proof that I'm just ancient here. But, uh, you know, Chris Chris Bourbon and Tom Jackson were an incredible team. And and when it comes to... uh, Actually, watching the games, John Madden was oh, so good. The best. John Madden, uh, again, he was he was fun. He was fun, but um, it also gave you a great insight into the game that some other people didn't necessarily give you. So uh, I miss him, too. <laughs> George R. R. Martin, thank you for coming on the Press Box. Oh, my, my pleasure. Thank you. Huge thanks to George R. R. Martin. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic! by Erica Cervantes. If you're new to the Press Box podcast, we do this twice a week, a show on Monday that I do with David Shoemaker, and then an interview show later in the week. And this week, I think we're going to have three episodes. So join us for more lukewarm takes about the media. I'll see you soon.